This is the UU Perspective with your host, Sharon Merrill. Welcome to episode number six of the UU Perspective, where we provide weekly interviews with today's most inspiring Unitarian Universalists. Again, I'm Sharon Merrill, and I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and a member of the Unitarian Universalist Society of Cleveland. This show is going to focus on UU sharing their involvement in the community and the impact that they are making through their passion to make a difference. You'll hear what they've discovered in their journey, what they've done and how they've made a difference, and the impact they hope to see for the future. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations from your fellow UUs around the world. Today you're going to hear from Meg Riley. She is the Senior Minister at the Church of the Larger Fellowship, and she is actually based out of South Minneapolis. And she has been part of the UUA in the past years in a variety of positions. She's directed the advocacy and witness programs. She's done a lot of work in the youth office. Uh, She has directed the Standing on the Side of Love campaign. And she has also been part of the Unitarian Universalist response to Hurricane Katrina. She's an advocate for world peace and justice. She has also been the founding president of two organizations, Faith in Public Life and Equal Partners in Faith. So you're going to hear about the Church of the Larger Fellowship, its history, and also what the plans are for the future. It was a great conversation. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it too. So let's get to it. Here's Meg. All right, you use. I am thrilled today to have my guest Meg Riley from the Church of the Larger Fellowship. Uh, she is the senior minister at the church, and I'm excited to have her here. And I've given you guys just a bit of an overview about Meg, but I, Meg, I want you to go ahead and let everyone know a little bit more about yourself and what your role is in the uh, UU community. Well, I've had many roles in the UU community by now. I've I've been in the community my entire life, so. Um, I have done many different things, and right now I'm, for the last almost five years, I've been really just having a blast at the Church of Larger Fellowship, which is a UU congregation without walls that allows us to use any means that we can to reach out and find people who want our message. So we're doing a whole bunch of different stuff. We have a prison ministry. We have almost 600 prisoners And for them, everything that we do has to go through snail mail. There's no um, electronic way that we can reach them. Most of them are forbidden to use computers. So when we do, say, classes for prisoners, there's just like a whole, it's a correspondence course. We also have a lot of elders who are not at all on computers, and so we might call them on the phone or write to them. Um, And other people, we, we have such a variety of people in our midst. And what I've been really focused on, though, for the last five years is building an online presence for Unitarian Universalism for seekers, for for people who um, either, some of them do have a home. We have religious professionals who are part of our movement, and some of them maybe live in a place where there's not a congregation or they're just checking it out, and maybe they come to us and then move on to a more traditional congregation. So we have been... Uh, doing classes and worship services and Facebook groups and, and everything we can to find people online. 
And go back a second to the the prison ministry that you guys do. How long has that been going on? Uh, that's that's been going on, but in in the last nine years, it built from forty five people nine years ago to almost six hundred, and uh, that is all by word of mouth. We, you know, there's no advertising in the prisons. So many prisoners really want what we have, and so many prisons are filled with fundamentalism. And so the people who are edgier are so excited to find a place that is, you know, welcoming of pagans and Wiccans and Buddhist meditators, and really that you get get to have all of that and still be accepted. And also um, a lot of BGLT prisoners and people who really have felt condemned we're just so excited to find unitary universalism. And are you guys going in and doing services, or is it more cor- correspondence by mail? We are not going in. Some congregations are locally going in and doing fabulous prison ministry. What we are doing is sending them. We have a monthly publication called Quest, and it's a worship publication with a monthly theme, and so we have um, sermons and short readings. And then we have we get them subscribed to the UU World if they join us, so they also get that. Then we can set them up with pen pals so that they can write to one or two people and really go in depth with somebody, uh, Unitarian Universalist in the free world. And then also we do um, a number of correspondence classes, starting with the new U and Unitarian Universalist history and world religions and spiritual practice and all kinds of classes that they do by mail. And um, how many prisons do you think this involves? Boy, that's a really good question. I'm many, and and one of the things that's very labor-intensive about the prison ministry is that prisoners are just moved for no particular reason. So just plain keeping track of people is, is a challenge with address changes um, so that we don't lose them, you know, um, it's, it's really, the, we are in the process actually of adjusting the way that we do the prison ministry and we're going to be inviting congregations who maybe are interested in running one of these classes to partner with us so that they would do a course, you know, a different congregation might do a correspondence class with the prisoners so that we can broaden out and serve even more people because we know that there are thousands and thousands of prisoners who would really love what we have. And especially right now, we don't have that many women prisoners. And, and I think we're really looking to to reach out more to, to the women's prisons. Because of word of mouth, you know, it's really stayed within the men's prisons. So we have a lot of men um, or, or transgender people in men's prisons. So, um, yeah, it's, um, it's an exciting, exciting ministry. And I'll tell you, I never feel more moved than when I get the letters that we get talking about how just human kindness has changed lives within prisons. Mm -hmm. Anybody who says Unitarian Universalism is only for the privileged should really take a look at these prisoners' letters, and that really puts a lie to to the belief that we're only good for upper-middle-class people. Hmm. Wow. Because, of course, a lot of who's in prisons is poor people and people of color, it's a very diverse community in our prison ministry. Right, right. And is it encompassing just in the United States? Yes, it is at this point. Uh-huh. 
Well, of course, the United States has more, way more prisoners than anyone else does. And one of the things we're excited about with the Black Lives Matter movement and Michelle Alexander's work on the new Jim Crow is that there really does seem to be moving from a localized movement to a national movement to, to demand a stop to this mass incarceration. And so um, I think I know at General Assembly this year there's going to be a lot of um, time and attention focused on that. Michelle Alexander came, I don't know, three or four years ago and just set my world on fire. I thought I knew stuff, and I heard her speak and thought, oh, my God, she's brilliant. And, you know, that book has really just uh, given us a frame to talk about what we were stumbling around trying to talk about before. But anyway, um, I'm very excited by the Unitarian Universalists, uh, you know, um, across the country who are getting active in, in stopping mass incarceration. And, and things like President Obama speaking up, and even some conservatives who just think it costs too much. So perhaps we have a moment that we can mobilize. Yeah, great. Um, tell me about the Church of the Larger Fellowship and kind of a, give us a history of the church. Sure. Uh, CLF started actually in 1944 as an outreach to uh, soldiers in World War II, and it was part of the UUA. Now, it always been... Actually, the AUA, the American Unitarian Association, when it started, was more like CLF. It wasn't an association of congregations. It really was support for individuals. But then as it became an association of congregations, the CLF, was, as part of the UUA, was reaching out to individuals. In the 1950s, um, Monroe Husband uh, did the fellowship movement, came out of the CLF. And um, 400 of our congregations now started as fellowships in that movement, some of which have gone on to be thriving churches, some of them which have stayed very small. I mean, there can be thriving small churches. I, I didn't say that well, but um, some of them have gotten much larger and hired professional leadership. Some of them didn't want to do that. But um, that was part of that whole, are you a Unitarian and don't know it, ads in the magazines and people came together and I grew up in one of those fellowships in Charleston, West Virginia, and they were um, lay-led and, you know, very exciting places, and that was part of CLF in the 50s. Then in 1970, the UUA had a budget crisis, pretty significant one, and said to CLF, uh, why don't you become a congregation and make your own money and basically get off of our budget? So then we did, and so we were, as Peter Morales been talking about congregations beyond walls, um, I mean, uh, beyond congregations. We've been at a congregation and beyond since 1970. So um, then it's just continued to evolve. I remember it was a really big deal in the 1980s when they got an 800 number and people could, could call them. That was, you know, the technology then. And so they've always, it's always been a very inventive, quirky, diverse membership. Probably our most famous uh, member is Albert Schweitzer. But it's always used whatever technology we could from, you know, the horse and buggy to the computer to reach people. Yeah. And you, you were, I was reading that you were saying um, in serving this congregation, you consider it the most creative, unusual, spiritual community. The unusual part grabbed me, and I wanted you to kind of define that. Yeah, well... You know, when we have worship online every week, at the beginning we say the chalice is lit and we light a chalice. 
on the screen, and then people all literally all over the world say the chalice is lit and where they are, and you get a feeling that you're part of this community of people who are in New Zealand and Sweden and Kenya, and and so and then you're you're actually talking to them in the chat bar. If it's a bad sermon, you can tell because everyone just starts talking about something else. If it's a good sermon, people talk about the sermon. But there's this level of interactivity, which is in coffee hour and certainly around, it's, it's, I think it's in the center of every congregation, really, is that human connectivity. But what's different for us is that we have this deep connection with people that we physically have never met. And so it's also unusual in the population. So um, it's, it's a service might have religious professionals who are looking for a place to get nurtured themselves alongside of people who live in very remote geographic places, alongside of people with a physical or emotional reason that they um, it's hard for them to get to a um, bricks-and-mortar congregation, and maybe that they can't physically get there, maybe that they really don't like it. it. You know, there are just all kinds of reasons that people are online. Um, you mentioned timing. For you, Sunday morning isn't a good thing. We don't meet on Sunday morning. We meet Sunday evening, East Coast time, and then Monday afternoon, East Coast time. And most of the Europeans come Monday afternoon. But we have, you know, people in the mil on military bases. And um, one thing that I really love about our congregation, it's very diverse economically. Um, it's just a really wonderful mix of people who are, you know, struggling and people who are comfortable, and it, I just, for me, the diversity that's in the room at all times is, is just a holy thing, and the fact that within that, people are really listening to each other and wanting to be connected to one another. I, I find that tremendously moving, and people, people share deeply online. Sometimes I think people say more online than they would say in a bricks-and-mortar church. I mean, I, I visit a lot of bricks-and-mortar churches, I guess, preach, and Generally speaking, in the joys and sorrows in a bricks and mortar church, you hear about illnesses and births and graduations, and, and they're all great things. But in ours, we might hear about, you know, somebody with a struggling marriage or an affair or um, difficulties with their sister or, you know, people are really pouring their hearts out. And then they're giving each other cyber hugs, you know, they're really support the support. If you're in a bad place and you say so in one of our worship services or Facebook groups, you're just going to be lavished with love. And I'll tell you what, those little parenthesis hugs, it's surprising. They go in pretty deep. <laughs> to have people say your name and put them in parentheses, you just feel better after that. So, um, so yeah, I'm, the diversity of both the individuals who come and then the community that's created between them, I think, is, is pretty unique. Yeah, and it sounds like a safe place for people to be able to really say what they need to say. Insofar as there's such a thing as a safe place, yes. I mean, you know, with any diverse community, people are going to feel marginalized. And I wish, you know, I wish that there were any place for everyone to always feel 100% safe. But I think people really listen to one another and offer what they have with, with love and care. And especially as the Internet community develops and social media turns into this kind of call-out culture, 
you know, that's just not what we're doing. We just aren't there to tell each other what's wrong with each other. We're, we are a radically imperfect band, and that's just a given. And the homilies are not people like me telling people how to try to be a little better. They're people like me saying, man, it's hard, and here's what I'm doing to try to figure it out. What are you doing? You know, it's just, it's a, um, it's a, it's a community of care. Yeah, okay. What's the biggest change that you've seen in the structure of the CLF and, you know, the mission over time? Right. Well, I don't think the mission's changed at all. The mission is, you know, to reach out and find people. Um, but I think what, what's been most exciting to me in my almost five years, I backed into. I actually didn't mean to create this structure. I have always, I for a while I was in the U.S. Youth Office and we had young people who came and spent a year. Then I, when I ran the Washington, D.C. office, we started an internship program there, and we had um, people just out of college usually come and spend a year or two. Well, I started at the CLF, and I knew I'd need some additional help to do what we had been doing and start this online stuff. So I thought, well, until I can hire a minister, I'll bring in an intern. Well, this has evolved into what we call a circle of fellows, we now have um, eight, and um, I believe that actually having that wheel at the center of constant movement, people come for a year or two and move on, and it's always excruciatingly painful when people leave, except that absolutely fantastic com people come to replace them. So in the center of the content creation and the outreach is this um, shifting group of people because it's not like if you stayed long enough, you'd really get it and you'd be able to do it perfectly because the landscape online changes all the time. And so in order to keep trying new things and not just go into ruts, having this, um, having this circle of fellows just makes it really interesting. And they started out as seminarians, but immediately, even that first year, a minister in final fellowship said, I just would like to learn these online skills, and I have a half-time job right now, so how about if I come? So from the very beginning, it's been a mixture of people and ministers, seminarians, people who are never going to go to seminary, religious educator. Um, you know, this year we brought in a fellow to do the web who's a professional in, in web design and, and all of that. So it's, um, it's a wonderful learning community. We are, you know, our, our, our informal motto is always in beta, and, um, and we are. And so we're constantly changing, evolving, tweaking, saying, no, that's not quite right. Try this. And um, that, that environment is just great and fun and interesting to work in, and the people are just fabulous. Yeah, and it sounds like a great place to kind of experiment with things. Yeah. We, you know, I think we are experimenting, experimenters, and, and hopefully what we learn benefits not just us, but the whole movement, because every every congregation needs to be work, moving out into this arena. It's not like you're either bricks and mortar or you're online. Every bricks and mortar, if it's going to work today, needs to be creative and agile online. There's just no question. Is a lot of that, you think, to do with the millennials and how they... Um, react in the world to their surroundings. It's like we have to provide this type of thing for them. Yeah, it is about the millennials, but really it's it's kind of um, 
kind of crosses generations. I mean, um, certainly a lot of the Gen X folks are operating completely in this world. And, I mean, the, um, you know, some of the millennials that I meet are actually in rebellion against all of this technology. <laughs> you know, they're just enough of that. I mean, one young person on our board said, hey, what if we did a phone tree? That just sounds so cool. Like, I've never been part of a phone tree. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, God, I used to do those, you know, for yeah. girl scouts and stuff. Like, I don't want to do that again. So, yeah, it's um, the board and the fellows and the participants are all multi-generational, ranging from – we have more young adults than most congregations do or many congregations, but – we're really evenly spread across generations, and that's part of the richness, I think, of the community. How do you uh, figure out, like, how to create some changes? I mean, are you, like, surveying members and doing things like that? Well, we have analytics. So analytics tell us, like, right now we switched, because we wanted to be mobile-friendly, we switched from one worship platform, which was dying anyway, so we had to switch, but to another and the one we switched to is a nightmare. It's a disaster. We're trying to figure out how to get off of it. And we don't have to be geniuses. We look at the numbers and we hear from people. <laughs> so, um, you know, when the numbers go down, you know you're not going in the right direction. So I'm part of the uh, UUA and the UUMA right now. We're doing an entrepreneurial ministry um, class for a couple of years that I'm taking part in. And the two-word motto that I left our first session with was, fail faster. So, um, so I think that's what I said to everyone when I got back. Okay, we got to speed up our failure rate around here because there's just no way. You just have to try something and make it up. There's no, there's no path to follow here. So, right. so what you've got to do is try something, be really realistic about how it's working, and be prepared always to tweak and let go and shift and um, pay attention to what is working mm-hmm. and keep that. And um, so anyway, that's. That's what we're in the middle of endlessly, it feels like right now, about worship. But we have um, one, of the, one of the people on our board works at SpaceX. He's a software engineer helping to get, you know, like rockets to Mars. And so I said to him, you know, do you think you'll stay there a long time? And he said, yeah, I'd at least like to get people to Mars. And I, I thought, well, God, if he's going to get people to Mars, I ought to at least be able to get a functional worship platform. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> So, so, you know, we're, we're just, we're working it, we're, you know, and, but it, I think when you, instead of feeling like, oh, I'm so bad, I failed, if you just say, this is just what we're going to be doing, we're just going to be trying stuff and trying stuff, and, and that, and it, it um, brings a real different spirit to it, you know, kind of like, well, if you're not failing, you're not trying stuff that's new, you know, so. Yeah. You know, I always say babies don't just get up and start walking usually. They usually fall a lot. So, you know, we're, we're messing around with it. Yeah. So. What do you think the biggest challenge for the CLF that you've faced so far, and how have you overcome it? Well, the biggest challenge is sustainability because people think everything on the Internet is free. Well, it's going on anyway whether I come or not. And so, you know, figuring out short of, I mean, having ads, which really is not an appealing idea, or selling databases, which we're not going to do, which is how a lot of online businesses do it. It's been a challenge to figure out 
how to build out to a design that's really going to be sustainable. So are you thinking in ways of how to monetize in a way? So eventually, yes. I think we'll be looking at monetization to be able to strengthen our technology and our capacity and besides the fellows to actually bring on board a tech person so that we can fail faster so we're not relying on people who are doing our work around the edges of their full-time job. But at this point, we're still operating more like a congregation with pledges, and um, and we have a lot of people who make it possible to do what we're doing, who who give, you know, what they can. Some people it's five bucks, some people it's, you know, hundred bucks a month. I mean, so we're looking for sustainers, really, so that we can invent stuff without, you know, more and more of my time, honestly, is being spent finding the resources to do what we we need to be doing. Sure. So. Yeah. Okay. What what are some of the future goals? Well, we've just started. Um, Jorge Espinel in Colombia um, has joined us to do Spanish language outreach, and um, he's created a Spanish language part of uh, the clfuu.org website. So building that, strengthening that, that's just in the beginning stages. Obviously getting this worship to a place where we feel great about it. We're really looking at collaborating more and more. I mean, everything we do is collaborative. We, we never try to do anything on our own. And so collaborating, we're looking next year to collaborate with uh, First Church in Portland, Oregon, to, to create some alternative kind of worship that's both online and offline, just as an experiment, see how that goes. We're um, talking to some folks about shifting the way that we support small groups of people um, who may meet in house churches and how we might provide spiritual support or deepening for them or say a member of their group, you know, dies or something, how we might be there to support um, the small groups because uh, we, we have a special fondness for the small groups. And we're, we're really looking to build a sustainable staff and technology um, base from which we can keep, continue to build. Yeah, it almost sounds like uh, what uh, Scott Taylor was talking about with the multi-sites. You're creating multi-sites, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a different kind of multi-sites. We we support and and have for a long time. Uh, we used to have church in a box, and then it was church online. But then after we built the online sanctuary, that felt confusing. So now it's called Worship Express, where we have small groups who are members of the CLF, and that is a subscription-based um, thing. But, yeah, we're looking to deepen those relationships now that that would be easy to do with technology and just see what um, what might be useful in that realm. Well, what's the most impactful program the CLF has? You know, we here we've innovated and innovated, and I would have to say as I travel around that the thing that most people still identify with the CLF and still talk to me about is our monthly magazine, Quest. And I'm just, everywhere I go, I'm told, oh, I love Quest, I read Quest, I listen to Quest podcasts. So that remains, and it has been through the whole through the whole evolution of CLF. I would say that remains um, really central, including, I've been surprised, some really young entrepreneurial startup-type ministers have said, oh, we use Quest. So I love that, because it's a, it is a great publication. It's 12 pages, and it's not 
news. It's not announcements. It's just worshipful. We call it a worship publication, Quest Monthly. So I would say still, after all this change, that remains central. And it's not to reassure what people always ask me. We have no plans to stop the print edition of that. Yeah, I was just going to ask, is that print edition or is that uh, online? It's both. Okay. It's both. It's, we have an app where it is podcast, and you can listen to it. We have an app called CLS Quest, but we also, um, it's on the web. You can listen to podcasts there. And But it, a lot of people get it in the mail. And what people tell me over and over is, when it arrives, I read it cover to cover. And, you know, it, it's not going to be something like reading The New Yorker, where I have to fly from certain, you know, the East Coast to get through the whole thing. It's more like, you know, you can take it into the bathroom and have to <laughs> 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 Oh, man. Yeah. Well, as a lifelong UU, did you have anyone in your life that inspired you or guided you? Um, not to stay a UU. In fact, the reason that I got into youth work was because not a single person ever said to me once, I hope you'll stay in this space. In fact, what they did was educate me about all kinds of other religions and kind of shrug as if it really didn't matter. And so one thing that I always say whenever I talk to any young people is, for my sake, I really hope that you'll stay in this space. You may, there may be something else you need to do, but I really want to be in relationship with you, and I really want you to stay here. And I remember as a young seminarian, I read Mark Morris and Breed's first book, Black Pioneers in a White Denomination. I was 27. I was a DRE. I went to my first General Assembly. Mark gave a talk, which was all about these individuals who had had such a hard time. But what what really got me about the book was, I think, even though I was white and I grew up here, the kind of difficulty of being welcomed spoke to me. So I went up to Mark who I now know, but at the time was a total stranger to me, and everyone was thanking him for his book and getting it signed. And I burst into tears, and, and then I was totally embarrassed. It turns out Mark cries all the time, so I have no need to be, but I burst into tears. And then I just, all I could get out was, I grew up, you, you, and so did he. And he just gave me this giant hug. And um, I think that, that thing of how you have to kind of say, this is my faith, and I claim it, and stick to it, you know, um, uh, much harder for people of color, God knows, mm-hmm. or people who, who come out of a Muslim or Christian, you know, like people with identities, which the mainstream UUism is a little bit uncomfortable with, but um, I just could so relate to that book. And so I always, I always think, you know, in a way that book held me in when I might have left because I went to a United Church of Christ Seminary, and they were very welcoming and encouraging of me. Why don't you become a UCC minister? And, uh, so, but you know, this is my faith. I love it. I love the people. I, you know, we're far from perfect, but who isn't? <laughs> you know, we just keep trying. We're kind of like, I'd like us to fail a little faster sometimes. Sometimes it feels like as a movement, we fail insanely slowly, but. Um, we do keep getting back up and trying. Mm-hmm. So I'm, you know, that's something that I love. And I've, I love, I mean, one, one part of my work that was just, right, I stayed at the UA in a whole variety of positions. And 
probably the most fun thing I ever got to do there was start the Standing on the Side of Love campaign. Mm -hmm. And um, that was kind of what I went out on. I had run the Washington office and all kinds of different stuff. But um, the Standing on the Side of Love campaign, I felt like really gave you used the opportunity to say who we were to the world in a way that was theologically grounded and people could take it and move with it into the world in the way that they were most passionate about. So right now I'm loving in Indiana seeing the Standing on the Side of Love shirt in the demonstrations about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and seeing them in the immigration struggles and the Black Lives Matter struggles and, you know, just marriage equality, just seeing that symbol of, you know, who we are just walking around on its own. So, um, yeah, I, you know, anybody who's in a long-term relationship knows the upside and the downside of any individual or institution. And certainly Unitarian Universalism is nothing but human, which means flawed. But, but also there is always, I think it's, there's so much hope in it as a faith. It's a very um, hope-giving identity for me to have walked around with. Yeah. I went way off of your question, but anyway, that's my life as a UU. <laughs> that works. That works. I was going to say, because how, you know, when you were getting into the faith, were you able to share what Unitarian Universalist is to people? Was that easy for you? Oh, no. 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 When I was young... All it was was a rejection, really. I mean, I grew up in a fundamentalist Baptist neighborhood in West Virginia, and then I went to the UU Fellowship, which was very much about, at that point, when I grew up in the 60s, the civil rights movement. And so um, what I knew about my faith was it was about this world and courage, because it was, it was there were actually a few people of color, but very white congregation, but really standing up. I mean, believe me, I my neighbors did not approve of my faith. I, I was condemned to hell all the time, my siblings and me. And I always joke that when I came out as a lesbian later, it was very handy. I'd already been told I was going to hell for, for my whole life. And my, my parents would just say, they, they don't know what they're talking about. They're, they're wrong, you know, in a way that a lot of gay people didn't have that at home, kind of that, that training. Um, but so, no, I wasn't at all. And... In fact, I love Joanna Fontaine Crawford says, evangelicals, if you ask them about their faith, they don't give you an elevator speech. They testify about it. They tell you how their faith has saved them. And that's always what I want to hear from people. How is Unitarian Universalism saving you? You know, and if it's not, what are you going to do about that? Because we make it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's not saving you. How are you going to get saved? How are you going to save yourself? And, of course, a lot of people say, I don't need saving. But they must be a different species from me because I need saving every single day from (laughs) racism and sexism and capitalism and all kinds of stuff I need saving from (laughs) every single day. So, anyway. Yeah. Do you have a quote that inspires you? that you could share with us? So I go back over and over to this book that the poet Adrian Rich wrote actually during the first Gulf War called What is Found There? Notebooks on Poetry and Politics. And in it, there's a whole essay about what poetry does. And But she says, uh, what if is the first revolutionary question, the question the dying forces don't know how to ask? 
And I turn back to that over and over because I think what if, what if, what if is, it is. It's, it's a question that will take you anywhere, you know, right now. What if Black Lives Mattered? You know, and it just is a question that I've spent my life with. And, um, of course, being a UU would be a question, not an answer, right? But it, yeah. it is. It's just it's such a question that, that can always open open a new door. Wow, that opens a lot of conversations. I like that. What if? What if? Yeah. Wow. All right. And then one last question that I ask everyone. And that is, how is Unitarian Universalism, as a religious denomination, uniquely positioned to serve and impact society? Well, oh boy, I could I could have done the whole thing on this. I mean, if you look at the data on what people are looking for, it's us. They're looking for a multi-faith, multi-metaphorical, non-authoritarian, poetic way to make meaning and hope. And I feel like that the days when people are looking for answers as things fall apart, the answers have fallen apart, and people know that. And so I feel like what we can offer is accompaniment for, for a very broken world as we face climate change, which you know now is a huge focus system for you use, as we, as we face the loss of privilege and the understanding that that's a good thing to lose privilege. I feel like Unitarian Universalism is is there, not in a way to say, like, we're the rock, you know, as, as um, Peter Mayer's song says, you know, it's the river. God is the river, not the rock. And I think understanding that we are in that flow, which is sometimes very turbulent, sometimes very smooth, is something really beautiful and not only beautiful, also incredibly painful, but there is um, there's such relief in knowing that you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, great. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Meg. I've really appreciated your time, the conversations we've had, and learning more about the CLF. Uh, and so, again, thanks so much for being with us. Absolutely. And it's great that you're doing this podcast. Congrats on that, and I look forward to seeing where you take that. Thank you. The UU Perspective Podcast is supported by all of you virtual churchgoers out there and you Unitarian Universalists from Canada down through the United States to Mexico. Thanks for listening. And you can always go to the UUPerspective.com website, catch the show notes, and also go to any of the links that our guests have mentioned. Also, please feel free to leave us a review and download on iTunes and also on Stitcher Radio. Until next time, peace be with you.